Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be Job chapter 12, verses 13 through 25, which is on page 241 of the Bibles in the seat backs. And if you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible in the seat back as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in lengths of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, stripped, and judges he makes fools. He loses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away, stripped, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the illumination of your word. We thank you for the way that you instruct and guide us in its truth by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, today we pray that you would just... um, magnify the truth of your wisdom as we examine that reality in your word, that attribute of you, that eternal, infinite, and unlimited attribute of you. God, we pray that uh, we would not rely on the flimsy, limited wisdom that we operate in, Lord, but that we would we would learn to trust your wisdom and that we would learn to lean in it, into it and, and, and find our support there. God, I pray for every ear to be able to hear um, not as human words, but words of, of the Spirit, the infallible, inerrant words of God. And Lord, I pray that you would help me as I, as I preach these words, God, that I would preach them in a way that does not take anything away from them by my own humanness and does not try to add to them by my own uh, intellect, God, but I just trust that your word is sufficient as you have given it to us, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So good to have you here. Um, I wanted to just make a real quick announcement to you. Uh, if you're a lady here, um, we are having a women's uh, retreat, uh, uh, kind of a connect weekend is what they're calling it, and there's all of the details are on this little tan card that's in the foyer. I think they're on the tables. Uh, also, if you need information, you can ask Margie or Ginger after the service. And uh, we, the, I know they would love to have you there. It's going to be a really fun event. I've heard some of the details of what they're planning to do. So ladies, make your plans to be a part of that now. What are the dates of that, Ginger? 
Okay, it'll be yeah, September 29th. And so, well, I'm sorry? Okay, the 29th and 30th. And so we would love to have you there, ladies. And so just make your plans to be a part of that now. Um, so getting into the message, over the past couple of weeks, we have examined um, things that are related to the power of God. We've We've looked at his sovereignty. We've looked at his omnipotence. And we started by looking at his supremacy. And today what we want to do is we want to think about the wisdom of God. And we want to do that in different aspects, different lights over the next few weeks. And uh, as, as we look at the attributes, it's really important to understand the wisdom of God. Because it is the attribute, you could say it like this, that roots and grounds the supremacy the sovereignty, and the omnipotence of God. What do I mean when I say that? Well, in order for God to be God in any meaningful sense, he has to be understood not just by his excellencies. A lot of people will refer to the excellencies of God. It's not a, it's not a bad word. It's not a wrong word. But when we understand God, we can't just say he's excellent in a relative sense. We have to look at his perfections. That is to say that whatever God is, God is to the superlative degree. And and so he's not not measured by relative degrees. He's not more than anyone else. He is the completion, the totality, the all. So what I mean is to say that God is sovereign is to declare that not that he has authority, but that he has perfect and he has complete authority. To say that God is omnipotent, as we talked about last week, is to say that he is the possessor of all power. And we've talked about this, but any authority, any power that his creation enjoys anywhere, only enjoys that because it's been delegated by God to them. For better or for worse, all power, all authority is is derived from God, delegated from God. And this is where... The consideration of his wisdom comes in. If God has all sovereignty and power, and I think we've proved that, but if he was, if he had sovereignty and had power, but he was guided by no wisdom, then God would only be a cosmic tyrant. We know that's true because in, in the world we inhabit, we see people that have a lot of authority and a lot of power, but they operate in no wisdom whatsoever. But because of the fullness of God's perfections, not just his excellencies, we discover that he is not only wise, but he is perfectly and completely wise. And as I said, the origin of all earthly wisdom. When uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to conclude his epic work, the book of Romans, this is how he gives his benediction. The very last verse of the very last chapter of the book of Romans says this, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice here that Paul doesn't call God the most wise the most wise relative to others, to creatures. But he calls him the only wise God. He's speaking in terms of exclusivity. His meaning is clear that all genuine wisdom emanates from God. 
And this truth has several practical applications for us in our thinking. Without God's revelation, as we've said over and over in this series on attributes, you have to reconsider this thought every week with these attributes. Without God's revelation in Scripture, we wouldn't know anything of Him. But it's more than that. We also wouldn't even have scientific knowledge of how the world that we inhabit works. We wouldn't know how to practically make decisions that lead to our flourishing instead of corruption and destruction. God is the blazing sun of wisdom from whom all light and heat of knowledge and the practical application of that knowledge radiates. That is who God is. And this is Job's emphasis in our text today that Leda read to us when he says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding And with him are strength and sound wisdom. And then Job drives this point home by listing all of the people and all of the things that wither away powerless in the, in the light of God's matchless wisdom. Do you remember what he said? God depicts God, or I'm sorry, Job depicts God as the one who destroys and leaves no hope of recovery. He's the one who binds a man and there is no one to loose him. He he says that those who deceive and those who are deceived by them are alike subject to God's wisdom, whether they know it, whether they acknowledge it or not. Because he's wiser than all, because he alone is wise, no one can outsmart him. On the contrary, everyone is subject to him. Amen? God rules creation by wisdom. Job says he can drench the earth with floods by his wisdom, or he can withhold the rain, the rains from the land by that same wisdom. He displays his wisdom in the face of those that seem to be in charge. When things go wrong, it's, it's a helpful test that when we see people in charge, whether we're talking about in the government, at our workplace, maybe even in our home sometimes, when they see that, that they're, they're causing chaos, we need to remember as believers who's really in charge, amen? And what, is, what does Job say about this display of wisdom in the face of those who seem to be in charge? Well, Job makes a long list. That's what the, the majority of our text was this morning. He mentions counselors. He mentions judges and kings. And he says that God address, he dresses them in the attire of slaves. That's what it meant when he puts a, a waist cloth around their hips. You remember when, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, what did he do? He took off his garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist. That's what it's saying about God dresses kings like slaves because of his authority, his wisdom, his power priests, the trusted, the elders, princes, the strong, and chiefs, they're all subject, according to Job, to God's wisdom. Even the mightiest nations are raised up and brought low again by the outworking of God's wisdom. And how much comfort is there in that for us? By his wisdom, Job says, he uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. You know what that means? It means that there is no secret that God can't discover. There is no lock that God can't pick. 
And there is no plan of man that God can't thwart. His wisdom drives and directs the sovereignty of his planning and the omnipotence of all of his working. Now, these are the results of God's operating in wisdom. But but let's get into definitions. What do we mean when we say that God is only wise, especially when we see human beings acting often with a degree of wisdom? Well, first of all, as we've already mentioned, it means that God's the source of all wisdom. Humanity only knows... Now, this is this going to be deeply profound, so break, buckle your seatbelt. I worked all week on this line. Humanity only knows what it knows. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I deserve that. Um, humanity only knows what we know. But consider for a moment what God knows. Everything we know, God knows. But he knows everything that ever can be known. His knowledge, his wisdom is limitless. When we make a distinction between God and ourselves, it's important for us to distinguish knowledge from wisdom. There's a book that everybody should have in their house, and it's not some theological work primarily. It does have a lot of theology in it, but it's the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I don't know how much you guys know about Noah Webster, but Noah Webster was a man of God. He loved the Lord. He he wrote a lot of theological treatises, but, but he wrote this English dictionary that's still the best dictionary, in my humble opinion, has ever been written. And his dictionary defines knowledge in 1828 as a clear and certain perception of that which exists, or of truth and fact. He says the, per- the perception of the connection and ar- agreement or the disagreement and absurdity of our ideas is what wisdom is. He says we can have no knowledge of that which does not exist. But God has a perfect knowledge of all his works. Human knowledge is very limited and is mostly gained by observation and experience. However, when he goes a few pages later and defines wisdom, he says that wisdom is the right use, the right exercise of knowledge, the choice of noble ends and the best means to accomplish them. This is wisdom in act, effect, or practice. If wisdom is to be considered as a faculty of the mind, it's the faculty of discerning or judging what is most just, proper, and useful. If it's to be considered as an acquirement, it's the knowledge of what use uh, uh, and use of what is best, most just, most proper, most conducive to prosperity and happiness. So he says knowledge is is facts. Knowledge can be either uh, positive or negative. We can know things that are not that are not wonderful or lead to the best things but true wisdom always takes knowledge and leads to the best thing stephen lawson defines the wisdom of god as the fact that god is all wise and that his choices always pursue the highest end and that he perfectly discerns the best means to arrive at that desired end that highest end and what is we've said this before what is the highest end um, the, which God's wisdom uh, pursues. Well, first of all, it's his own 
glory. That is the highest pursuit of God. But, but connected very deeply to that is the good of his people. The glory of God and the good of his people is the pursuit of God's wisdom. And these two things are never, please hear me, the glory of God and the good of his people are never in conflict, ever. God does not neglect the good of his people by pursuing his own glory above everything else. Likewise, God doesn't ever sacrifice the least fraction of his glory when he ensures the eternal good of his people. On the contrary, by working for the good of his people, he brings the most glory to himself. And isn't that a wonderful thought? I've asserted that all wisdom originates in God. If wisdom exists anywhere in God's creation, it has flowed there from himself. While some bare facts of knowledge can be discovered by unregenerate people, true wisdom can never be possessed by unbelievers. It can't. It's an impossibility. It's a moral, uh, uh, theological, and logical impossibility. Did you know the Bible says the same thing? In Psalms 14.1 and repeated again in Psalms 53.1, it says these words you may be familiar with. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So to deny God is to be marked by him a fool. And what is a fool? It's one who has no wisdom. And this is confirmed elsewhere. Remember Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Therefore, we have to conclude that someone who has a vast education and has advanced degrees, yet who denies or diminishes or redefines the existence and the glory of God is intellectually inferior to the person who maintains simple faith. Furthermore, God's wisdom is perfect. Raise your hand if your wisdom is perfect. Raise your hand. I'll wait. I'll wait. Go ahead. Come on. No mistakes. No, no, no problems. See, God has never, ever in all of eternity had to go back to the drawing board. I've been married for 30 years. I can't tell you in 30 years how many times I said, that didn't work. Men, anybody with me? Anybody in my exclusive club here? Okay, we got one honest man over there. Thank you, Mike. You get the honesty badge for church today. God has never, ever, ever consulted with anyone outside of himself. He never said, we need to get some the, the top minds working on this. He is the top mind. It's impossible to conceive of God ever being outsmarted or outwitted by anyone. Not by human minds, not by the designs of angels or demons. He is not even in the same league with anything in his creation. Isaiah 55, 8, you know it. It says, for my thoughts, God speaking, are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your way, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher 
than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Since God's wisdom is perfect, all of His decisions are perfect. They can't be improved upon by further consideration on His part. They can't be subject to the tastes, the preferences, or opinions of His creatures. He has never made a mistake. He's never judged anyone or anything unjustly or unwisely. He has never miscalculated anything. Similar to His sovereignty and His omnipotence, the wisdom of God is seen throughout creation. Think about it. The weather, the heavens... The animal kingdom, the diversity and the usefulness of plants, physics, biology, all of these things together proclaim the wisdom of God. With what incredible foresight and care has He created the world? What human, what human among us or or even in, in human history has ever made a single cup of earth? Or even just a drop of water. One molecule of air. All of their own accord. And if we can't do even such a small thing as this, how could we ever possibly, on our own, construct a single strand of DNA? Or just one of the trillions and trillions of swirling galaxies in the night sky? with our limited wisdom. Now, we've talked of God last week creating ex nihilo. And that just means that God created out of nothing. But but have you ever asked this question, going, going one step further beyond that, that theological fact? By what means did God know how to do so perfectly? Like, who taught God to create worlds, galaxies? Who did that? Well, we know it was by the vastness of his incomparable and infallible intellect. He did it because he knew how to do it. And he did it without an architect's blueprint. He had no visual aid. He had no idea suggested to him by one of the angels. They didn't say, you know what, really good blue skies. You should try blue for the skies, God. No one did that. Now, I have to throw Raven under the bus. For some reason, my daughter, my daughters-in-law, both Raven and Savannah, when we get together as a family, holidays, things like that, for some reason that completely eludes me, they like to work jigsaw puzzles. Now, I personally, I find watching grass grow to be much more stimulating, personally. But when they do that, they'll... They'll open this box and dump out all these pieces on my table. And, and they'll, they'll stare at that box and they'll try to find all the edge pieces. And then the harder work starts to try to find all the colors and shapes to kind of put that all together. But they're looking at this box to try to understand the image, the picture that they're trying to recreate. Now think of that as an analogy. When God built the entire cosmos, he needed no box for reference. He needed no image supplied to him so he would know what to do. But more than that, way more than that, God didn't even need the pieces in the box to create beauty. The images were original to his own mind and they were sewn together by his own wisdom and they created this beauty that we see. Jeremiah 
10 verse 12 says, It's He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. Now, I love the creation. But the creation of the cosmos was by no means the greatest display of God's wisdom. On the contrary, creation was simply the stage that God constructed so that he could showcase his wisdom not only to mortals but to all the heavenly and spiritual beings as well. Because nothing God ever did, has done, or will do has demonstrated the greatness and unsurpassed majesty of his wisdom like the salvation of a people for himself through the cross of Jesus. If every human that has ever existed, including our finest minds, whether you think that's Einstein or, or someone else, if we all put our minds together and complicated, and contemplated rather, contemplated the ramifications and damning power of human sin for a million millennia, we could never come close to discovering the remedy that God in his wisdom has formulated to forgive us and to purify us for himself. Think about the problems associated with our difficulty, being born in sin. Think about that. First of all, how can God remain holy if he somehow ignores our sin? How could he ever restore fellowship with himself, restore us to fellowship with himself without polluting his impeccable character in some way? Would the nature of God even allow for the possibility of, of him associating with wretched sinners? No, not at all. Perfect holiness represented by God and total depravity represented by humanity can never coexist ever there's nothing that that is within us in our power in 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 god's ability to bend that would ever make that happen habakkuk in his little prophetic book in the old testament says the same thing he says to god you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong can light paul asks rhetorically mix with darkness. Never. Darkness withers in the presence of the faintest light. Imagine that we have a large room, big old room, and there's no artificial or natural light to stream in through some windows or from a light bulb or anything like that. We're all in this room and it's completely dark. And one of you, in some segment of the room, simply lights a candle. The power of light is, it was not going to illuminate everything in the room, but the power of that candle is that wherever we are, anywhere in the room, we will see that candle. Why is that? Because light always disperses darkness and never the other way around. But when we're speaking, please pay attention to this, when we're speaking of God's holiness, we're not speaking of the flickering flame of a candle. We're speaking of the blazing radiance of a trillion suns. Not only can nothing hide from this light, but nothing can survive in the heat emanating from it. That's not our only problem. How can God 
remain just and not punish us for our sin. We've been committed to rebellion against his truth and his righteousness from our earliest days. What did David say in Psalm 51? In sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. How then could God be most worthy of glory and honor and power and majesty and yet somehow disregard our treasonous outbursts against our Creator and Lord? Now, I just gave you a few words. Consider those words again and understand the ugliness of sin. If God alone is worthy of all glory, sin in any form is blasphemous because it makes something else the object of our glorying. If God is worthy of all honor, then sin totally dishonors him because in sin we behave like disrespectful children making demands instead of offering obedience. If God is worthy of power, you must realize that sin would rob him of that power, screaming, my will be done. Sin seeks to strip God of his majesty and make a place for ourselves on his throne instead. Now, if God is known not by his excellencies, but by his perfections, we have a huge problem. Because if he winks at sin, then his justice is not perfect. It's imperfect. And that can never be. Because he is perfectly just, the insurgents must be punished. In fact, they must die. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. And here's the bad news. Romans 3 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is he to do with sinners like us. Well, if that's the bad news, let me give you the good news. Galatians 4, verse 4, beginning says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul tells us in Romans that through the incarnation of Christ and particularly in his crucifixion that God resolved this problem while remaining absolutely just and yet he was able also to justify those who have faith in Jesus. Because of this mark, this indelible black stain of sin, humanity must be held accountable for its wickedness. The wages of sin is truly death. But what if a substitute could be found? What if there was one man who could take the place of sinners? 
What would his qualifications have to be? Such a substitute would have to be a perfectly obedient law keeper. But since Adam's tragic fall, no such creature has ever existed. When men and women die, as we all will, we pay the full cost of our own sinfulness. And so, if we have debts to pay ourselves then it's illogical that we could be the substitute to pay somebody else's debt. If I owe the bank a million dollars, and I say, you know what, Sherman owes the bank a thousand dollars, I'm going to ignore my debt and pay his. Is the bank going to be happy with that? No, I mean, they'd love to get his money, but um, they're not going to be happy if I don't pay mine. It would be unjust. But what if God himself became human and began his substitutionary role by living a perfect life and and living it for God's chosen people. What if by his spotless life he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on behalf of God's people? And guess what? That's exactly what Christ did. No shortcuts were taken by him. But here's... The other half of that coin, the other side, the substitute couldn't just erase either the genuine guilt of sin uh, or, or a record of transgressions by just living a perfect life. He could only reconcile sinners to God by paying the penalty of all their sinning. The penalty for them, or for him rather, would be the same as for them. He must die personally bearing the guilt for their sin as well as the shame that is associated with it. And die in shame he did. He was arrested. He was mocked. He was punched. He was spit upon. He was scourged. He was crucified. And for six grueling hours he experienced hell on earth. As we sang this morning, as the father turned his face away, turned his face away from him and poured out the cup of his burning wrath upon Christ's most holy and most innocent head. And with a loud cry, he committed his spirit to God and breathed his last. And though this looked like to all the human observers that day as the most humiliating kind of defeat. This was the glorious outworking of the spotless wisdom of God on display for all to see. What a proof of God's wisdom was it when a mere three days later, God, having accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, who was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, now God raises him from the dead and seats him in glory at his own right hand. And listen to me, nothing will ever silence or squelch this testimony of the resurrection to, uh, to the wisdom and the, uh, and the glory of Almighty God. Who could have designed such a solution? Would we have come up with that if we'd gone back to the drawing board to solve our problem? No, we know. How does the world solve problems? They solve them by political intrigue. They solve them by shows of force. But God, amazingly, you need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He, he works through foolish things 
like an unfair trial and a public execution to bring about his wise kingdom purposes. Listen to a portion of 1 Corinthians 20. Where is, this is, yeah, it's, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Paul asking the question. Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Now watch this. I'm scooting down a few verses, but watch this. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. We said last week that Christ personifies the power of God. But listen to what else uh, Paul says. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He not only personifies the power of God to rescue sinners, he, he personifies the wisdom of God to design the perfect remedy to be able to do it. So what is our proper response to every reminder of God's wisdom? Simply put, it's to adore the wisdom of God. Well, when do we adore it? When we rest in it, when we lack spiritual comfort, when things don't make sense. When we lack physical strength and our bodies are failing us. We take comfort in God's wisdom. When we can't see God's providences, we take comfort in God's wisdom. When we fall short and lose in this world, we cling to God's wisdom. When we lose relationships or at any other time of stress, depression, fear, lack, we cling to and adore and believe with all our hearts in the wisdom of God. Every page of Scripture assures us that God is wise. And He's working out His plan to accomplish the highest end for his own glory and for the good of his people. And he will not fail. And he will not leave us or forsake us. Psalm 25 verse 4 is David wrestling with what I'm saying about believing in the wisdom of God when things aren't going Well, he says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you, I wait all the day long. So my encouragement to you as your pastor is to take comfort in your knowledge of the wisdom of God. Wait for him to show you that he is mighty and he is wise to save his people. Would you stand with me? God, I thank you for your wisdom. There's no one like you, God. There's no one that could be like you. God, I thank you that that you have all wisdom and that in your wisdom, in the wisdom of God, You designed so glorious a plan of salvation that you sent Christ to die on behalf of those who were worthy of no such thing. And yet you had compassion on us when we were weak. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
And God, help us to, to never grow so familiar with that reality that we don't marvel in it anymore. That we don't give you the praise, glory, honor, and majesty that you are worthy of as we consider the wisdom of God in bringing us to Christ. And this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can have our communion assistants come forward. We will, uh, we're about to come to the Lord's table and renew our covenant with Him and um, just thank Him so much for what He's done through Christ and these reminders, these emblems and symbols that we have of bread and wine to remember that. We also just uh, uh, love what the Holy Spirit does to connect us to the the resurrected body of Christ as we gather in His name as the body of Christ to to partake of this bread and this cup. And so um, we we just look forward to this every week. If you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus, or or if you're not sure, if you have grave doubts about your spiritual uh, place, your your faith, your life. Um, then we would encourage you just to hold off coming forward for this this celebration this morning. Not because we want to hold anything from you or put a spotlight on you. We just, the Bible instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11 that those who eat and drink unworthily of this, of this supper um, do so to their own condemnation and judgment. And we do not want to to see you suffer that that fate or that condemnation. But what we do want to do is we want to let you know that we're praying for you. We believe that God is calling your name and all you have to do, the Bible says, is to is to respond, to believe in him and to and to to uh lay down all your other lords and bosses and make him the Lord, make him the boss. And we would love to pray with you about that and give you some some counsel on that this morning. You can come see me or Pastor David, and we would love to have that opportunity. But for the rest of you, why don't you come forward, receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together in a moment. In Mark's Gospel, we read the account of the night before Jesus was crucified. And it says, as they were eating... He took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take the cup together. Now let's take a moment and give thanks for the vast wisdom of God. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that, that of what you have done, your great might, your sovereignty, your omnipotence guided by your wisdom was shown in the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the soon return of Jesus and so, Lord, for these things, we give you thanks. The, the word thanks does not come anywhere close to what we owe, Lord God. God, we want to lay our lives down for you and let our lives be a continual sacrifice of gratitude for your great wisdom in saving us when we appeared to be unsavable, God. And yet you worked by your spirit to call us into fellowship, communion, reconciliation with yourself. And for this, God, we give you praise. We give you glory. Let us walk in the strength of this covenant renewal 
all through this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to pronounce this benediction over you from the book of Proverbs, chapter one, uh, chapter 21, rather, verses 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen. You are dismissed.